Hello, welcome back to another episode of Insanely Criminal. I'm Emma. And I'm Jem. And welcome back to part two of Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, looking forward to this. Looking forward to, to finishing this saga of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, the ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, if you will. I'm very excited. I kept my promise and I didn't look anything Yay, up. So. Excellent, excellent. I was tempted. I didn't do it. Very proud of you. (laughs) Very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So, last time, we looked at how Bonnie and Clyde grew up, Clyde's brushes with the law resulting in his imprisonment, uh, the formation of the Barragang, and the subsequent crime spree that they went on. So now we're going to look in a bit more detail at the events that led to the demise of Bonnie and Clyde and the legacy that they left behind them, which... I think show me a person that hasn't heard the name Bonnie and Clyde. They're just absolutely notorious. They are. Um, and lots, lots and lots of stuff has been written and said about them. Loads of films and everything as we will look at. So, where we left off. So, April the 1st, 1934. So, almost 87 years ago to the day. Uh, the Barra Gang had just killed two highway patrolmen near Grapevine, Texas. As I said last time, this story was widely reported, massively exaggerated. Um, the newspapers reported a supposed eyewitness report that a drunken Bonnie had emptied a gun into one of the patrolmen as he laid on the ground. She'd laughed as she fired at the way that his head bounced like a rubber ball against the road. Oh. Yeah, that's just nasty just horrible it is yeah. <laughs> uh, another story stated that the police had found a cigar but bearing tiny teeth marks supposedly belonging belonging to Bonnie in the gravel but again uh, media went a little bit wild with that story uh, later on however Henry Methrin who was one of the eastern prison escapees who joined the Barra gang claimed that he had fired the first two shots at these patrolmen uh, after mistakenly thinking that Clyde wanted to kill them. Um, Clyde then joined in firing at them, so potentially they might not have died at all. Um, it's just that their, their kind of crimes and everything, they were getting increasingly chaotic because of they knew they were in pursuit of... Uh, the, the law was in pursuit of them and they knew that they were pretty much infamous across America and that they couldn't really hide anymore and I think you know absolutely not defending them but the kind of pressure that they must have been under at that point I think they were just like constantly nervous and constantly on edge as you would be if uh, the law was pursuing you I think well yeah like in every single town everywhere you went to they were after you yeah and like there was no way they were so recognisable at this point that there was no way that they could um escape basically so uh yeah so thanks to the media thanks to the portrayals of of these killings uh, and the increasing public backlash pressure was mounting on law enforcement agencies and a one thousand dollar reward was offered by highway patrol boss lg ferez for the dead bodies of the grapevine killers not even the capture just their dead bodies um, Texas governor at the time, Mark Ferguson, added a $500 bounty for each of the two killers. 
this was the first time a bounty had been placed on Bonnie's head specifically uh, for her alleged role in the murder of this patrolman. A few days later, uh, Clyde Methvin murdered Constable William Campbell, who was a 60-year-old single father in the town of Commerce, Oklahoma. Uh, this was another potential murder that probably wasn't meant to have been a murder. Um, the gang's car got stuck in mud and they were surprised by two local law enforcement officers. They fired on them and Constable Campbell was killed instantly. Uh, they wounded his colleague, Police Chief Percy Boyd, who they then took hostage. They released Boyd, however, after crossing the state line into Kansas and left him with a clean shirt, a few dollars, and a request from Bonnie to tell the world that she didn't smoke cigars. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was the most important thing that she wanted the media to know. <laughs> don't, I, I am a killer. But I don't smoke cigars. I just want the world to know that. <laughs> Priorities. Yeah. I like it. Well, you know, it's, I think she would have been hard pushed to try and persuade people that she wasn't a killer. But, you know, the whole cigar thing, she was like, well, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a step yeah. too far to smoke the cigar. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so Boyd, when, when he went to local law enforcement, he identified Bonnie and Clyde as his captors, but never learned Methvin's name. So the arrest warrant was issued for Bonnie Parker, Clyde Barrow and John Doe. Uh, this is when the public really turned against the gang and wanted their blood. Um, they'd kind of gone from that dramatised, cool crime couple Um our cool crime gang even, but the particular focus was on Bonnie and Clyde. Um, Dallas Journal ran a cartoon showing an empty electric chair with the words Clyde and Bonnie reserved on it. Oh, my God. So it was, they were public enemy number one. It was that, that, as we said, that so-called public enemy era. Um, the, the, The media and the public just wanted blood, basically. In spite of this, it wasn't quite enough to stop the gang, and they continued uh, on their killing spree, as we will find out. So on April 30th, uh, the gang robbed the Kansas bank and escaped with $2,800. It's a lot of money in the time. On May the 1st, uh, the gang was identified in a bank robbery in Sac City, Iowa, and just two days later... They took a further $700 from a bank in Everly. So for a, a gang that started, they were notorious for their bank robberies, but it was really only kind of small town businesses. They like were ramping it up and like trying to go out with a bang here. Let's just rob a load of banks. Well, yeah, because the money as well, it doesn't sound like much, but like you said back then, that was so yeah, much money. Like, if somebody gave me $2,800, I'd be loving it. Yeah, hand it over yeah. now, somebody. <laughs> but please don't rob a bank together. Yeah, don't don't commit a crime. Yeah, we're we're all above <laughs> the law on this podcast. <laughs> so on May the sixth, uh, the gang travelled to Dallas to meet relatives, and then on to Louisiana to meet with Methvin's father. On May the nineteenth, Methvin ended up getting separated from the group when he was getting food for them. With Clyde waiting in the car outside, a police car passed, causing Clyde to panic and drive off, leaving Methvin behind. So again, this is just 
they are in constant panic mode. Um, they're just like any sign of any kind of activity from law enforcement and they're just bolting straight away without, I mean, seemingly not even caring about Henry Methrin now, just leaving him behind um, so that they can remain on the run. So this left Bonnie and Clyde just themselves on their own together, which is perhaps how they wanted it. I don't know. I wouldn't, uh, even in like a, it's, it's horrible being a third wheel, being a crime third wheel. I might be like, oh yeah, oh yeah. You'd want somebody else, or just leave. Yeah, like it must be a bit. <laughs> oh, you guys, oh, I'll just hang out over here then. Yeah, maybe he liked the crime, but I don't know. Would you? I wouldn't want to deal with being the third wheel. Neither would I. Neither would I. <laughs> so. Yeah, they've left Methbin behind, but in case the gang had ever been separated, um, were ever separated, they had designated Methvin's parents' house as a rendezvous, uh, which would later perhaps turn out to be a mistake. So, Frank Hamer, as we found last time, this was the former Texas Ranger who he had been employed again in a special commission to basically track down and stop the Barrow gang. So Hamer had been feared and admired throughout Texas for the past 20 years. He was seen as the archetypal Texas Ranger. He'd officially been credited with 53 kills throughout his law enforcement career. He was known for his toughness, marksmanship and investigative skills. He was particularly willing to use deadly force against criminals so he kind of had a bit of a controversial reputation, but he got the job done. Uh, was was what people thought. <laughs> I don't agree with it personally. No, uh, yeah, it's not my beliefs. <laughs> no, absolutely not mine. But then, the time that we're in, we're in, you know, southern US. Yeah. So Hamer began to study the gang's patterns, basically discovering that they made a wide circle throughout the lower Midwest. Clyde Barrow was pretty consistent in his movements, so Hamer was able to plot his course and then ultimately predict where he'd go next. Hamer said, an officer must know the habits of the outlaw, how he thinks and how he'll act in different situations. When I began to understand Clyde Barrow's mind, I felt that I started to make progress. So there are mixed accounts of what happened next. So according to most versions of the story, Henry Methvin had previously told his father that the gang had planned a rendezvous in Louisiana in case any of them were separated. Methvin's father, Ivan Methvin, had contacted Sheriff Henderson Jordan of Bienville, Louisiana, about his son, his legal troubles and his involvement with Barrow and the Barrow gang. The information was subsequently passed on to Frank Hamer. It's alleged that Methvin's father struck a deal with authorities whereby in exchange for this information, it was agreed that his son would not face the death penalty for the murders of the two highway patrolmen in Grapevine. It's unclear whether Henry himself was aware of this arrangement. Uh, Some reports state that he went to law enforcement himself to give up Bonnie and Clyde, but most accounts state that it was his father who kind of ratted them out uh, trying to save his son from something. Um, but ultimately it, it didn't quite work that way. 
So using this information and the predictions that Bonnie and Clyde would be coming to visit Methvin's family soon, Hamer started to formulate a plan to ambush the couple. Hamer created a gang of his own to help him. So Sheriff Henderson Jordan and his deputy Prentice Oakley were the first to join. Hamer then brought in f- fellow former ranger, Manny Galt. Uh, Hamer asked Dallas County Sheriff Smook Schmidt for his deputy, Bob Alcorn, to join the posse. So he joined, uh, and he was joined by Ted Hinton, another Dallas County deputy. So these were the six uh, guys that formed this posse that were going to take down the, the Barrow Gang, or at that point, just Bonnie and Clyde themselves. Prior to this, in November 1933, the two deputies and Schmidt himself had tried to ambush Bonnie and Clyde, but found only their abandoned Ford V8. They discovered the bullets from a Thompson submachine gun had not penetrated the car's body. Knowing this, Deputy Hinton requested instead a Browning automatic rifle. So, time is running out for Bonnie and Clyde at this point. Uh... Hamer and his posse are hot on their trail. Um, And now we're going to look at the death of Bonnie and Clyde. So on May 21st, the posse had learned that Bonnie and Clyde were planning to visit Bienville that evening with Methvin. It's thought that Hamer's posse had persuaded Ivan Methvin to park his truck near the agreed rendezvous and remove one of the wheels as though he was changing a tyre. It's thought Bonnie and Clyde would recognise him and stop stop to help him. Meanwhile, Hamer and his posse would hide in the bushes alongside of the road, ready for the ambush. The ambush was in place by 9pm that evening, uh, and they waited the whole of the next day with no sign of the couple. On the morning of May 23rd, the posse was almost ready to give up when they heard a Ford V8 approaching at high speed. Surely enough, it was Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde fell into the trap and slowed down to assist Methrin, so Ivan Methrin, Henry's dad. The posse opened fire on the couple immediately while the car was still moving. Taking no chances, the posse fired approximately 130 rounds into the car, killing Clyde Barrow first, followed by Bonnie Parker. One lawman described the scene. Each of his six officers had a shotgun, an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car even got with us. Then we used the shotguns. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards down the road. It almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. According to the coroner's report, 17 rounds went into Clyde's body and 26 into Bonnie's. The undertaker later confessed that working on their bodies proved extra difficult as the embalming fluid kept leaking out of the holes. What? Oh my God. What a lovely image. Yeah, I'm glad uh, I had my life yeah. a while ago. <laughs> yeah, apologies, anybody. <laughs> oh my God, one. I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> It's not, it's not something that would cross your mind on average here, really, is it? I wonder if no. he gets shot. Is that... <laughs> oh, my God. And for the amount of like, shots that were fired, they didn't hit them that No, I think it was just a bit of a... They just went crazy and just... 
emptied all their guns into this car and his body and <laughs> do as much damage as possible. Yeah, I thought they would have had a lot more like bullet wounds, so to speak, yeah. but they didn't have many. No. Uh, but yeah, that was the end of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, very young when they died. I think originally there was a reluctance from Hamer and a couple of other Texas Rangers that were um, approached about forming this this kind of this gang to pursue them. Is that there was a reluctance to to shoot a woman, like even someone who'd committed as many crimes as Bonnie at that point. They, she was a young girl, and they didn't feel comfortable shooting her. But ultimately, uh, they needed to be stopped. And Frank, as we know, fan of deadly force, uh, didn't have a problem in uh, pumping twenty six rounds into Bonnie. No, it's probably just a yeah. hobby for a guy like him. <laughs> so immediately after this, and I mean immediately after this. The bullet-ridden car was dragged through the streets of the local town with the bodies of Bonnie and Clyde still inside it. Such was the public anger around the couple. People flocked to the streets desperate to confirm that they were in fact dead. There were reports of people trying to rip the clothes and jewellery off the couple as some kind of macabre souvenir. One woman cut off bloody locks of Bonnie's hair and another man was caught seemingly trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. There was another man who took a knife out and was trying to cut off Clyde's ear as, again, some kind of weird souvenir. Um, The things that were taken from the car, there was bits of glass. People tried to, like, rip out bits of the car um, were sold as souvenirs. Um, And I'm sure there are plenty of people who would buy stuff like that, weirdly. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> it's like I saw someone recently who bought Jeffrey Dahmer's glasses. Yeah, right. I mean, I just don't understand how anyone would want yeah, that what, in their home. Imagine people coming round. Oh, it's a nice pair of glasses. But yeah, they belong to Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, I know you and I like skulls, but <laughs> I don't think I could have an artifact from a serial killer. Like, it's it's too much. Yeah, it's just don't don't give them that infamy that a lot of them wanted. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Some people are strange, very strange. <laughs> so Bonnie and Clyde had wished to be buried side by side, but Bonnie's family wouldn't allow it. Uh, Bonnie's funeral was held uh, on May the 26th. More than 20,000 people attended, making it difficult for her family to even reach her grave site. Bonnie's grave was inscribed, as the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine in the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. And uh, mm. it's really sad, I think. Bonnie was originally buried at the Fish Trap Cemetery in Texas, but her grave was moved to the Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas in 1945. As I mentioned in part one, uh, Bonnie was particularly fond of writing poetry, and one of the poems that they found in the hideout in Joplin, Missouri, uh, had perhaps a prophetic warning from Bonnie. The final lines of the poem called The Trail's End read as follows. 
Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be a, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Oh my that, god, that's that so really sad. sad, isn't it? That you yeah. should, if you get the chance, and anyone listening, read the full poem of the Trails End because it's actually like it's really good. <laughs> Yeah, I think I will after this because, like I said last week, I was dying to to yeah. read some of it, but I didn't want to spoil it. So that'll be my yes, afternoon. Read, read Bonnie Parker's poems. Um, Clyde was buried in a private funeral on May twenty fifth. Uh, buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas, next to his brother Marvin. Thousands of people gathered outside the funeral home, hoping to catch a glimpse of the body. The two Barrow brothers share a single granite marker with the epitaph gone but not forgotten which was chosen by Clyde apparently so not quite as uh, poetic as, as Bonnie's epitaph no it's quite yeah. simple isn't it so the, the car itself often referred to as Bonnie and Clyde's death car um, was later exhibited at carnivals and fairs throughout uh, the kind of midwest south of America uh, later sold as a collector's item in 1988, the Prim Valley Resort and Casino in Nevada purchased it for some $250,000 to put it on permanent display. Yeah. Oh, my God. Since 2011, <clears throat> it's been display, uh, on display at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada, where it can still be seen today. And they've got a Bonnie and Clyde exhibit in there with the car, uh, a bloody shirt that Clyde was wearing on the day he died. Uh, and new information uh, about the couple so they still you know they still draw a crowd even like 80 nearly 87 years later there's still this kind of air of mystery around them yeah I think I know what we just said like I wouldn't like to own something from a murderer but I think I would go and see something like that because it's interesting yeah I think it's it's a part of history really and yeah um it's gruesome obviously and i have i guess i have mixed feelings about like i said glamorizing and giving these criminals like the infamy that a lot of them wanted but at the same time it it is kind of fascinating but uh, profiting off um basically the the lives of the people that they killed i'm not sure how i feel about that but uh, yeah, it's uh, it'd be interesting to see it. I think if I ever find myself in Nevada again, uh, I will. Uh, I'll go check it out. I will we'll have to go now. So the <laughs> legacy that they left behind. So as we've said, Bonnie and Clyde, two of the most, if not the most, famous crime couple uh, in recent history. Um, they've been written about. There's been films, songs poems, paintings, you name it, uh, written about Bonnie and Clyde. It, perhaps rightly or wrongly, it always focuses on the couple and doesn't really go into uh, the rest of the Barrow gang. And I must admit, before I started researching this, I didn't really know like that they had this gang and it was the gang itself that committed most of the murders and robberies. I think it, it's the history is very much it was just Bonnie and Clyde who did all this but they had a number of uh, co-conspirators 
uh, alongside them. Yeah, I didn't know anything anything about the guns before last week. Nothing. Uh, Just to go back to Henry Methrin for a moment. Um, So as much as he wasn't, uh, didn't face the death penalty for the murders of the two officers in Grapevine, um, he did ultimately get put on trial um, for other murders that he'd committed as part of the gang. So as much as his dad had, had apparently struck this deal to save him, he'd done plenty of other bad shit to to see that he got tried anyway. So uh, don't be in a crime gang, basically. <laughs> well, yeah. And don't expect your dad yeah, to try and yeah. get you out of trouble. When you killed, I think he was just <laughs> his dad was desperate. He was desperate for his son to kind of escape this life, um, but I think he was he was too far gone by that point. But he brought down Bonnie and Clyde, apparently, uh, so that's good. But Bonnie was made out to be this like CR smoking machine gun wielding criminal mastermind. Uh, in reality, she wasn't really anything like that. Um, she. Again, very adamant that she didn't smoke cigars. Um, but after the injury, <laughs> uh, the car accident that she had, she she struggled to walk. She was kind of a a quiet, studious girl before she got involved with Clyde Barrow. Reading some of the poetry that she wrote, you know, she was clearly a very intelligent girl. Um, and it's a shame, really, that she got caught up in that lifestyle. But I think perhaps by the time that she realised what was happening it was too late and again she was she was absolutely in love with Clyde so she would have done anything to, to stay with him so yeah I think she was way in too deep to, yeah, to consider leaving but over the, the years like the films and songs that have been written about the pair Bonnie's portrayed as this kind of femme fatale with like a gangster kind of appeal to her but from what I've read, I don't think she was like that at all. It's it's a lot of these photos that were all just like posed, made up, having a bit of fun photos that they found in the gang's hideout that cemented yeah. that. You know, Bonnie's posing with guns and stuff. And and she must have been, in a weird way, almost like a bit of an idol to, to young women at the time, I think. Because they're seeing this like, almost like a strong, powerful woman. Thinking, oh my God, she's like this total badass but I don't I don't really think she was like that I think she was just a sad lonely kind of messed up woman who got involved with the wrong people absolutely and given the time as well I bet women did look up to her because women were very much silent back then so to see someone like Bonnie not giving a fuck I mean don't go out and kill people, but you be know. a role model. Just don't <laughs> kill people. Please. Yeah, <laughs> I think like part of of the, the time as well. The reason why the public initially became so enamoured with them is there was a lot of kind of anti-government sentiment in in you know the Great Depression, and um, what the kind of the Wall Street crash had obviously forced so many people into poverty. Um, a lot of people were angry, a lot of people had lost their jobs um, and I think there was a, initially a bit of a at least the, the fighting back that they're taking what's, what's been taken from them kind of thing and that's kind of why the public initially was so like 
obsessed with them because at least they were doing something like at least they were they were making a stand but the more it went on and the more the media reported it it became clear that they were actually just really bad people who just killed indiscriminately um, and stole anything and it was just they were spiraling um so they had to be stopped so they were so that's it. That's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. There's there's so much more that's been written about them and so much more detail on the the crimes that they they committed and in the lives. So it's it's fascinating reading really. And the film that I watched, uh, The Highwayman, is pretty good. Uh, it focuses more on Hamer and his posse. Um, so it, it doesn't. The film kind of starts 1934, I think. Uh, but it's worth a watch if you're interested at all in the history. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I'd I'd watch it again. Uh, so, what do you think? How do you feel about Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah, that was really interesting. Like there was so much that I never knew about. Yeah, it's. I had. I found it quite fun. Uh, in a way, researching this. As fun as it can be, researching criminals. <laughs> But you know, it was it was interesting <laughs> reading about them. It was interesting to learn more about Bonnie in particular because I think, again, I had this image that she was like this evil, evil, evil woman when I I really don't think she was. Which is, it's sad. Uh, it's sad that her life was ended so abruptly, in a way. But you know, she. I guess ultimately she got what she deserved because she she was knowingly doing these crimes. Whether she was in love yeah. or not, she was still murdering people. So, you know, you can't. Yeah, I think that's what you have to remember as well is that you can feel sorry for her slightly, but she's still... She yeah, could have walked absolutely. away at any point, yeah. I guess. She could have turned Clyde in, <clears throat> uh, possibly saved herself, but I guess she had a loyalty to him that she wasn't willing to uh, give up. So, yeah, Bonnie and Clyde. Sad. <clears throat> yeah, Very sad. So that's it. That is my first full episode. I hope you enjoyed that. Hope I didn't royally cock well it done. up. Well uh, done. No, I told you last Thank week you. that you did a really good job. Thank I'm you. I'm very proud of you. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed doing that. I look forward to doing my next one. I'll, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do it on. I need to look for some more inspiration. Uh, yeah, you need to start watching do. crime documentaries every <laughs> single day like me. I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in older crimes. Like I particularly like... 20s, 30s, 40s kind of stuff. So maybe yeah. I will look for some uh, more crimes from that era. Doing all this really makes me want to play the game L.A. Noir because that's set in, I think it's 20s Los Angeles. And it's just such a cool game. Oh, it's so good. I'm like, that, I'm like, that might be what I do with my afternoon. I might go and play that because... Yeah, smoke yeah, a cigar and play it Jazz Eleanor. music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's set, like, all the time Prohibition. Like, the Black Dahlia <laughs> murders, and I'm like, oh, okay. 
I know. I've always wanted to do the Black Dahlia, but it's so much research. Maybe. That it's just a bit on the back It'll burner. Maybe a future episode. <laughs> Yeah, I like push that one onto you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just said it. I like I've got... 20s, 30s, 40s stuff, so. Yeah. yeah, go for it. I tend to go for, like, after yeah. the 60s is kind of post-Manson. <laughs> is that the official era? <laughs> post-Manson. That's the era. Crimes PM. <laughs> yeah. That's what I do. But I've got next week's episode. Oh, excellent. Rick, so. excellent. Am I allowed to know what it's about? Oh, exactly. We'll see. Secrets, honey, as well. I think no, I can tell you last oh, week. Wait, no, you might have. I've forgotten. <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's a woman. A woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll text you after. Right. Shall we, shall we end it there? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. And we will come back to you next week with another episode. Thank you. Thanks to everybody. See you later. (laughs) Bye. See you later.